Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. My son Andrew was hoping for a taste of winter while home on military leave from Texas, and I guess he got it, huh? So did the rest of us. Um, <clears throat> I, I hope each of you had a blessed uh, time with family and friends o- over Christmas, and uh, some of you watching online as well, that uh, you're enjoying some of that still, perhaps. Uh, as we step into this new year, with all of its uncertainties, uh, we who are Christians do so with the perspective that there is a God who, who knows a future and who is in charge of it all. However, there are many folks around us these days who live in fear of those uncertainties and, and without that biblical worldview. And sometimes, perhaps, uh, we find their perspective rubbing off on us a bit. And maybe we find ourselves questioning some of our beliefs instead of really trusting God in some of these situations. And so the passage I share with you from God's Word today reminds us of of the awesomeness of God, the God that we believe in, and just how that belief then does make all the difference as we go through life. And I'll be reading again from the Old Testament book of Isaiah the prophet. Um, Earlier in chapter 40 um, are, are verses that are often read during Advent as they prophesy about John the Baptist, the forerunner, the the one sent by God to prepare the way for the coming of the Savior. And we'll reflect back a little bit on those verses, but uh, we'll be looking primarily at the last half of the chapter, beginning at verse 18. And I invite you to stand in reverence to God's word as as I read today. Isaiah 40, beginning at verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver, and he who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot, and he seeks out for himself a skilled craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to live in. It is he who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I will be his equal, says the Holy One? Raise your eyes on high and see who has created these stars." The one who brings out their multitude by number, and he calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, Jacob, and assert to Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice do me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives strength to the weary. 
To the one who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word and what it reveals to us about you. And may we pause and contemplate that today and recognize the difference that makes when we know you and when we can look to you and rely on you for forgiveness of sin and for strength as we go through life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Sometimes I try to grasp just what it must be like to go through life without belief in God. Philosopher William James once said it this way. He said, if there is no God, we are like dogs in a library, observing the volumes but unable to read the print. You get the picture. The world must be a very puzzling place without an understanding of why we're in the library. However, if we believe that we have an all-powerful, all-wise God that created each of us with a purpose for our lives uh, and, and that he reveals himself to mankind through the details of his creation and through the pages of his written word, the Bible, then we have some moorings uh, as we encounter the challenges of our earthly lives. So what does Isaiah reveal to us about God in, in these verses? First of all, I, I want to just mention this. His condescension to even explain himself to us. Now, when I say that word condescend, probably for almost all of us it dredges up some negative connotations, doesn't it? Why is that? Well, it's because condescension to us is an attitude of patronizing superiority. None of us likes to be talked down to, do we? I have on occasion slipped into a condescending tone when talking to one of my adult kids. That never goes over very well. Because they desire to be treated as the adults that they now are. Which then puts them on the same level, talking as equals together. And one of the things that bothers me about the political rhetoric these days is a condescending attitude of plenty of political leaders and media personnel and even people on social media. People who think that anyone with a different perspective than they have is an idiot. But I have to remind myself not to slip into doing some of the same in reverse. However, when we talk of God's condescension to mankind, we need to understand the difference. Condescend, in that sense, means to come down to or to willingly lower oneself to another one's level. And that is what God has done. He is not in any way our equal. Um, He is in every way above and beyond us and unfathomable to us mortals. And so when he describes himself here in these verses, for instance, he, he has condescended to us and explained himself in terminology that, that we mere mortals can at least comprehend in part. Our basic guidelines for interpreting Scripture, we say, are, are to take it literally unless the context requires that we take it as figurative language. And we'll see several uh, of the examples of figurative language here in these verses. 
And so then, first of all, what, what does God reveal about his location and his size here? He describes himself as the one who sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Verse 22 here. Verse, beginning 21, he says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And now, is there actually a chair or a throne someplace up there in the sky that God sits on? No, God is a spirit and he is invisible and he's also everywhere present. But it helps us to fathom him as clearly above all the inhabitants of the earth. As a teenager on the farm, I remember well at times during harvest, uh, filling the truck box of the 1964 Chevy truck and uh, pour, pouring a, uh, or I say, augering the grain in, into the truck box and looking down from up there and, and seeing grasshoppers hopping around in the box. And uh, they looked very small from my vantage point. Well, you see, the picture that Isaiah gives us here is not really about God's location so much as about God's supremacy over us humans who are small and weak as grasshoppers in comparison. And if you look back in the verses in the middle of this chapter, you catch then a bit more of that emphasis. <clears throat> Just how big is God? Look at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Picture here then God's hand so large that the oceans fit inside the hollow of his hand as he used his hand then to measure and then pour them out on the earth. He goes on to say in that verse, and he marked off the heavens by a span. What's a span? It's half a cubit. Does that help anybody? Uh, English unit of length is equal to about nine inches. Uh, it's a distance from the end of the thumb to the end of the little finger. That's a span. It's a way to measure then if you don't have a tape measure handy. And so God then, picture this, God using the span of his hand to mark off then the vastness of the heavens. How vast are they? Space exploration is kind of mind-boggling to us. Scientists calculate that traveling the speed of light, it would still take 100,000 years to fly from one end of the Milky Way galaxy to the other. And they understood that there are perhaps millions of such galaxies out there. Our God, picture him measuring out the heavens with a span of his hand. God calculated the dust of the earth by the measure. In NIV this says, or by a basket. It would be a rather large basket. He, he weighed the mountains in a, in a balance and hills in a pair of scales. Many of you have seen the Rocky Mountains. God is so vast, he could weigh the mountains out with his, uh, on, a, on a hand scale. Such is the one who, who is described as sitting enthroned above the whole earth. <clears throat> what is the scope of his sovereignty? He reigns over all of the heavens and the earth, and that means there's no place in the whole universe and that isn't part of his domain. He goes on to tell us in verse 23 that rulers and judges of the earth are meaningless to him. Um, they may think that they have, but they really have no power in his domain. Verse 23, it is he who reduces rulers to nothing. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth. Then he merely 
blows on them, and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. So I think of my lifetime, there's leaders like Gorbachev and Reagan and Thatcher and Ayatollah Khomeini, they've come and gone in my lifetime. Now there are those like Vladimir Putin and Joe Biden, Boris Johnson, I don't know how to pronounce that Chinese leader, and Kim Jong-un in Korea. Um, and, And they'll all have their moments in the sun too, before God blows them away as chaff in the wind. It is good to remember that God is over them all, and though their influence maybe seems vast at the time, yet in view of all of human history, each individual impacts very small. They just got into power, and their time's up. He blows on them and they wither, and he's in charge of when they will leave power and when they will die, and also when nations will rise and when they will fall including the nations he was speaking to at the time here in Isaiah, Israel, and Judah, and including present-day nations like China and Russia and the United States. Verse 15, Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales, a drop and a speck to God. Kind of puts it in perspective, doesn't it? As we go on, we see here concerning him then his comprehensive knowledge and ability. Besides being above it all and bigger than we can imagine and reigning supremely over it all, he had the knowledge to calculate it all and ability to create it all. And as we consider then the awesomeness of God, Isaiah reminds us that there is really none that can even compare to him. And then Isaiah goes on to compare anyway here. So we get the picture. Um, and, and so we see then his lack of really any competition compared to an idol, for instance, here. And, and then we're talking uh, alive versus dead, although actually it's more extreme than that because idols were, didn't die, they were never even alive. And, and it, he says about them, they're made by a craftsman out of gold, silver, or wood, uh, made to stand so they don't fall over, but they can never move or do anything at all. And in such an extreme contrast to that, then, is the living, all-powerful creator, God of the universe. You know, we might laugh at the idea of worshiping uh, statues fashioned out of gold, silver, or wood. But, But notice here, then, that anything else that we might worship on this earth is equally meaningless and dead compared to God. Only the creator, God of the universe, is eternally alive and and deserves our our worship. And he goes on to explain also then his lack of any competition compared to any man. And and so now we're talking about creator versus the created. Verse 25, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. If you go back to verse 13, he says this, who has directed the spirit of the Lord? or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding, and who taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and informed him of the way of understanding? Though modern man has changed the world with things that he's invented, look up to the heavens, and what do you see? Isaiah says, lift up your eyes, and look to the heavens. Who created all these? And he brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each one by name. 
Man can't even count all the stars and is still discovering more stars and planets. But, but God puts them all in place. He names them all and he remembers their names. And he needs advice or instruction from nobody. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. And if God is aware of all of that and in charge of all of those things, then does he not also know you by name and have full grasp of your situation in your life today? And does he not also then know our situation as a nation today? He certainly does. And that thought, I think, can both encourage us and also perhaps disturb us. It can disturb us when we realize that, that we uh, all, um, pers- personally and as a nation, must answer to him for how we live our lives and how we conduct our affairs. And he has given us a code of conduct, for instance, in the Ten Commandments, that we have all disobeyed. The atheists would like to claim there is no God, and, and with that perspective, then they don't have any moral absolute so they can do whatever they please. But consider the philosophy student who uh, wrote an ethics paper once, and, and he was arguing that there are no absolutes and everything is just relative. And, and perhaps judged by his research and documentation and scholarship, maybe someone would say he deserved an A on that paper. However, the professor gave him an F. And he had a note explaining. He said, I, I don't like blue covers. The student was furious. He, he protested, this is unfair, it's unjust to grade the whole paper on the basis of the color of the cover. The professor looked at the student and he said, well, was that the paper that, that argued that there's no objective oral principles such as fairness and justice and that everything is relative to one's taste? That's the one, yeah. Well, then the grade remains an F. And the student came to realize that day couple of things. One, that he absolutely believed that there are moral principles of fairness and justice. And also that the professor got to set the rules on the paper. The, the, the one and only awesome God who, who is above us all, who is bigger than it, we can imagine, and, and who reigns over all the heavens and earth and designed it all and put it all in place, is also the one who has established moral absolutes which we have all disobeyed in our thoughts and our words and our deeds. And we are answerable to him. He is our judge. And we actually deserve not an F, but an H. That is for hell itself. But Isaiah, as he tells us in this chapter, he also tells us about God, about his kind offer of comfort and forgiveness for all sinners. And you go back to the beginning of the chapter and he says, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare warfare has ended, that her guilt has been removed. Another translation says that that her sin has been paid for, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. And Isaiah was declaring that though God knows our guilt, yet he would send his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the price, to bear the penalty of our guilt for us, and thus being fully just and also extremely compassionate on all individuals that will look to that Savior that he has sent. 
God still has his ways of, of dealing with the nations. Uh, Isaiah said to the people of Israel and Judah in very troubled times in which they lived as their nation was in danger of collapse from within and attack from without, he said in verse 27, Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is unscrutable. He's still in charge. He's still in charge of the whole universe and will do with it as he sees fit. But this same God also cares for all individuals who will look to him. And then lastly, I want to point this out. We see here his offer to give strength to all who will wait upon him. Verse 29, he gives strength to the weary, increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly and fall, yet those who hope in the Lord or those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. Where does their strength come from? They don't, generate, they don't generate it themselves, but they gain new strength because God gives it. And he says about that, then, because of that, they will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and, and not grow weary. They will walk and not become faint. And again, remember our, our general principle for interpreting Scripture is that we take the Bible literally unless the context um, tells us not to. Uh, we have some picturesque language here, don't we? Don't, don't expect any of us are going to sprout wings and fly literally. But recognize that Isaiah is describing here the inner strength that God can give a, a worn and weak person. Strength like you would picture of that eagle flying seemingly effortless through the sky. What an offer that is. Who is it for? It's for those who hope in the Lord or those who wait on the Lord. What does it mean to wait on him or hope in him? And how will you do it as you look at 2022? Does it not mean for us to look to him in trust and confidence in the promises that he has in his word here? And that involves in times of personal reflection on his written word and going to him in prayer. That's how we wait on the Lord and hope in him. <clears throat> Are you weak or tired discouraged, dismayed, then look daily to God in his word and live in repentance and faith and, and he will give you strength for each day. I want to end with a quote from J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. I think it sums this up so much. He says this, There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery can disillusion him about me in the way that I'm so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. There is certainly great cause for humility, for humility in the thought that he sees all of the twisted things about me that my fellow men do not see, and I am glad, and that he sees more corruption in me than that which I see myself, which is in all conscience quite enough. There is, however, equally great incentive to worship and to love God in the thought that for some unfathomable reason he wants me as his friend and desires to be my friend and has given his son to die for me in order to realize this purpose. As we come to the close of our service here, we have opportunity to partake of communion. And isn't it good to know 
that though God knows everything about us, he's not disillusioned in his love for us. And he offers that unconditional forgiveness of sin and promise of eternal life and strength for the day. And as we come forward for communion, we come recognizing our need for that and humbling ourselves before him. Let us pray. Lord God, I thank you for your word through the prophet Isaiah. We've been soaking that up here during Advent and Christmas season. And Lord, as we look at the new year, we thank you that these words that rung true for people that would wait on you way back then in Isaiah's time are still so relevant to us because you are the awesome God of the universe that's still in charge of it all. And you have condescended to us. You have humbled yourself to reveal yourself in, in the written word and also in your son whom you sent to uh, take on the form uh, of mankind and to live and to suffer and die for our sins. We thank you that there's forgiveness in Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, that as we deal with the challenges of this life and at times feel discouraged and we, we let the uh, philosophies and the perspective of the world get to us, Lord, thank you that when we will pause and remember who you are and, and look to you, wait on you, uh, there is new strength. And, and we pray for that and we need that as we look at the new year. In Jesus' name, amen.